You're listening to the Beauty Plus Justice podcast, where we talk with folks from a variety of fields about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. These conversations are led by Dr. Tamara James Todd, a trailblazer at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health and head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab. And I'm your host, Lisa Johnson, a PhD candidate at Harvard Chan. Hey listeners, we hope your 2023 is what you hoped it would be so far, and I'm glad you're here for another episode. So we've talked a lot on the Beauty Plus Justice podcast about differences in environmental exposures and health outcomes experienced by communities of color, particularly the Black community. A community that we haven't yet highlighted is the Asian immigrant community, some of whom are also burdened by personal care product chemical exposures, driven by beauty standards and other social pressures. What work can be done by clinicians to ensure equitable access to resources and information across all of the communities that they serve? We should be doing all we can to empower patients uh, to enhance our counseling uh, so that they can live as healthily as possible before, during, and after their pregnancy. That was Dr. Lucy Chi, an OBGYN at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, as well as South Cove Community Health Center, which primarily serves the Chinese immigrant community, including in Boston's Chinatown. For folks not familiar with this area, Chinatown is a neighborhood located between the South End neighborhood and the Downtown District in Boston. It's one of the cultural hubs of East Asian and Southeast Asian communities in Massachusetts. The residents of Chinatown are predominantly Asian and of lower socioeconomic status, though the demographics of the neighborhood have been changing in recent years with an increase in luxury condos and short-term rentals that are pushing longtime residents from the area. Today, Dr. Lucy Chi is joining Dr. Tamir James Todd to talk about beauty product use among Chinese immigrants and how acculturation, which is the process of assimilating into a dominant culture, may drive this. Now here's Tamira to get the conversation started. Um, I'm so delighted to be joined today by colleague and friend, Dr. Lucy Chi. Lucy, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Lucy Chi, uh, she, her pronouns. I am an obstetrician gynecologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and at South Cove Community Health Center, which is a federally qualified health center located in Boston, Malden, and North Quincy, two of the suburbs of Boston. At South Cove, my team provides care primarily for the Chinese immigrant community. Wonderful. I'm so glad that you are here with us today. You know, the goal of this podcast show is to really highlight the intersection of beauty and justice. And so I'm excited today that we'll have a chance to talk about that really in the context of the work that you are doing um, within um, the Chinese immigrant community and beyond. And it's oftentimes a a community that we don't spend a whole lot of time uh, talking about um, in healthcare um, as much, particularly in health disparities. And I would really like to highlight that as we talk uh, today. And so I just, before we get started, Can you tell us a little bit about your path to and why you decided to uh, pursue a career in obstetrics and gynecology and a little bit about working within this particular population? Sure. My um, father was born and raised in Malaysia. My mother born in China and raised in Taiwan. They met in New York City and I was born in Boston. 
um, along with my three siblings, uh, we grew up in central Massachusetts, where we were one of a few Asian immigrant families. Um, my father is an OBGYN, so this early exposure of seeing him so dedicated to this work uh, definitely had some influence. Um, although I love learning all fields of medicine, I quickly realized um, the care within OBGYN is my passion. Um, it's a field of education, of empowerment, and of advocacy. Um, I love being able to partner with patients and building their knowledge to live their most healthy lives, um, to help shed the shame and stigma that accompanies so much in OBGYN, and to talk with patients what might be taboo in their own homes, families, and communities. Um, nothing is too embarrassing to talk about in an OBGYN's office. Um, in addition, it's such a privilege to, uh, to share in some of the momentous times in a patient's life um, and possibly a time uh, when a patient is most motivated uh, to make positive changes. Um, so at South Coast, we care for over 30,000 patients. Uh, and as I've mentioned already, many of these patients are Chinese immigrants. Uh, during my residency training at Beth Israel, I was fortunate to spend some of my residency time at South Coast Community Health Center. Uh, and so since finishing residency, I began as a staff physician and now direct our OBGYN department, uh, which is a fantastically committed team of physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, nurses, assistants, labor doulas, uh, and more. Um, each year we help over 200 to 350 patients through their pregnancies and births. Lucy, I'm always amazed at, you know, the passion and dedication you bring to the table um, around ensuring that people have amazing and excellent healthcare um, in this space um, where we know that disparities exist. And I'm wondering if you could maybe highlight, because I think many of our listeners don't really have a great sense of, you know, what are some of the conditions that um, some of the, the, you know, the you know, population that you're treating may face? Um, and then also what are some of the, the ways in which um, you may unique, you know, bring kind of a unique perspective to, to that care? Because I, one of the amazing things that about South Cove is the holistic approach that is really uh, brought to the table. My clinical work and research work has been grounded in the care and needs of the patients. Um, so the patients I care for have higher rates of hepatitis B, gestational diabetes, perinatal anxiety and depression, um, and many uh, other healthcare disparities um, that you can imagine when uh, folks are of limited English proficiency or of lower income or don't know um, how to navigate the American health system. And just a note about gestational diabetes. So diabetes is a condition in which the body's blood glucose levels or blood sugar is too high. Now gestational diabetes is diabetes that occurs for the first time during pregnancy. Asian pregnant people, specifically South Asian, Chinese, and Filipinx pregnant people, in addition to Latinx pregnant people, bear the brunt of the burden of gestational diabetes. Notably, Asian and Latinx pregnant people are two times more likely to have it, and pregnant people who develop gestational diabetes are also seven times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes in the first five to ten years following pregnancy. Um, so much of the services provided at South Cove is to tend to these needs. Um, 
Our assistants um, and staff speak multiple language to try to address the language barriers. Um, we have a robust uh, finance and social department to help uh, patients navigate how to apply for insurance and how to navigate uh, working within the clinic and the health system. Um, and uh, I've partnered with many groups to examine uh, the various areas that I've mentioned to see how we may uh, work together towards improving uh, the care in the areas of diabetes and uh, mental health. Um, and I've partnered with uh, folks as yourself at Harvard School of Public Health to look at how environmental factors may be influencing pregnancy health. So specifically um, with the 200 to 350 pregnant patients a year that we take care of um, at South Cove, uh, we've been particularly interested in trying to address the needs of our patients with gestational diabetes. Um, and with your group looking at how we might uh, provide greater education, not only on diet and exercise, but things on uh, in the areas of environmental health. Thanks so much. In the, the kind of field of medicine um, broadly, but certainly in, in subdisciplines um, and fields uh, such as obstetrics and gynecology, there's been, you know, when we say the word environment and environmental health, oftentimes it's kind of relegated to physical activity and diet. So these kind of lifestyle factors. And I'm curious when you first um, started considering or hearing from your patients or just within the kind of broader obstetrics community about these other environmental factors that, you know, people may be concerned about or that may impact health, such as chemicals and personal care products. Um, is that something that has come up at all? I know that we've talked about this, but how did you first become aware of that? Yes, yeah, so I think we had been very limited as OBGYNs and how we addressed environmental health with our patients and their families. Historically, we've always counseled about the dangers of smoking and smoking expo secondhand exposure, um, of alcohol use, of um, air pollution, um, uh, of mercury exposure and fish consumption. Uh, but we didn't take a broader view um, of environmental health. Uh, and so together with working alongside you, I've learned a lot in this realm in the last five, six years, um, that it goes beyond just the diet and exercise, um, or that there is a lot more to diet and exercise uh, bes besides just the fish that we eat, besides just the dairy products that we may uh, take in, um, and also uh, not just only uh, the exercise that we do, but when we do the exercise and where we do that exercise. Uh, so taking a more global view of environmental health, you know, it's where you live, uh, where you work, what you do, um, and uh, in terms of the products that you may be using day to day, uh, the kinds of food that you are eating, how those foods are packaged, um, also when you might exercise, where you might exercise, is it a time of uh, lots of traffic, high pollution, um, and some of those factors, uh, patients may or may not be able to change, but every piece of information education that we can give to our patients helps them make healthier choices for themselves. 
Lucy, you know, when you highlight these, um, you know, different influences on our health, um, some that are much more traditional that we study, such as uh, diet and physical activity or smoking and alcohol use, and some that um, I think are continue to kind of emerge as, you know, impacting particularly um, pregnancy complications and health outcomes like air pollution and so on. Um, it's not just, you know, what, who we are as individuals, but it's where we live, what we um, eat, what we are using um, and, and its impact. And that can really, in some ways, I think, be influenced by um, our, our culture. And so thinking about in the context of caring for um, populations of individuals who may not have been born in the U U.S., um, what are some of the, you know, things that you've taken into consideration in caring for, um, you know, individuals, expecting individuals who, um, you know, may be using different products because their products are not from here, or the, you know, diet may differ. Um, I ask this because we have seen differences in uh, chemical concentrations from these personal care product chemicals um, that differ based on how long individuals live in the United States and um, and whether or not they were born in the United States. So do you, do you have any insight on what might be driving some of that? Um, are there differences in product use? Um, and um, what, to some extent, what drives that? Tamara, that's a great question. Um, along with your group, we have looked at personal care product use in our patient population. Uh, we know some beauty products can be a major source of endocrine disrupting chemicals such as phthalates and have potential adverse uh, health outcomes to a pregnancy such as possible increased risk of gestational diabetes. Um, so the longer someone has spent in the US, uh, the more conversational English they may be speaking at home and with friends. Um, and uh, with your group, we have found that those who do um, speak more English at home uh, and with their friends do have a higher use of uh, personal care products that have higher endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, it may be that patients who learn more English may adopt more of the habits of their other English speaking friends and peers. Uh, patients definitely do ask about whether it's okay to use such and such a product uh, from here or there. Uh, it is a challenge for us uh, at our health center when they do bring in products from abroad uh, because uh, they're not necessarily labeled with uh, the things that we know and study here in the US, um, but, I, but we do have a list of chemicals uh, that we know have potential harm and that we can uh, give to our patients to look at the products that they're using um, within the US uh, so that they can choose better products for themselves um, or maybe consider using less products uh, during the time of pregnancy. Um, so in this community, Product use, and I think in all communities, you know, women are using products, um, and we should be addressing this question. Um, if we don't bring it up, uh, they m many times don't even know to ask or think about uh, this matter. It's a it's a great great point, and I think my follow up question to that is, 
you know, we're doing some ongoing work right now where we're looking in different communities or neighborhoods um, around the, the city of Boston. And we're finding fairly, you know, fairly significant differences in the products that are available and sold in different communities. I think a lot of times, um, you know, in, in general, I, we put the onus on the individual and we, we think that the individual, um, oh, well, you know, in this particular case, uh, people are choosing to use products um, that may not be from the U.S. or people are choosing to, to um, use products that, you know, they may not know a lot about. Um, but in this case, what we're finding is the products that are available in the communities differ. And that becomes not just an individual um, issue, certainly it impacts the individual, but it, it's a community um, level um, issue. And so this really kind of harkens back to this justice piece. I, I'm curious, is, is that something that you've noticed about, um, you know, again, you mentioned some of this may be a challenge for individuals that have lived in the U.S. for a shorter period of time, are using products that maybe be, are less regulated, less well-regulated here in the United States. Um, South Cove kind of cross-cuts, um, you know, lower income to higher income communities. Do you notice any differences um, in what your, you know, the individuals that you're caring for have access to uh, within their communities? That's a great question, Tamara. I don't know if I can answer it uh, completely. I'd love to investigate this more. Um, the access primarily has to do with language, I believe. If patients don't know how to find the safer products, they aren't going to access it or buy it. Um, if a product is in Chinese, they have more comfort in what they are actually buying. Even for very standard things um, that we treat many patients for, such as a yeast infection or, um, or even um, just over-the-counter pain medicines, you know, we really need to spell out and write it out where they take pictures so they know exactly which over-the-counter medication to pick up from um, a local pharmacy. Uh, so pictures are very helpful. Um, and so I, I believe a lot of it is uh, involved in education for a patient um, and the price point. You know, many of these safer products may be more costly. Um, so it's uh, important to just uh, be mindful that uh, as we're offering uh, safer alternatives, that it's actually um, accessible from an economic standpoint too. It's a really great point. And I think oftentimes when we're thinking about um, these issues around language barrier um, and also um, around access and availability, um, thinking about, for example, personal care products and how we're communicating um, risk um, is, is, it can be a challenge. And, and yet um, this is, you know, an, an environmental justice issue when you're thinking um, about this, even in my own community, um, you know, there's, there's certain beauty norms and, and so on that really may make, uh, people from, you know, again, this is not necessarily just solely an individual choice, but oftentimes it's driven by what society's social norms are, um, around, um, beauty. So that can range from the way that we wear our hair to 
um, the various skin creams that we use to make sure that, you know, um, you know, skin may be light, lighter because that is a beauty norm um, and other things. Are there certain beauty norms or, you know, cultural social, social customs that, um, you know, may really intersect with this idea of being exposed to chemicals in personal care products within the population that you care for? Yes, lighter skin um, is a socially constructed beauty norm. Um, and uh, the Asian community is uh, no different there. Um, many uh, Asian Americans will use uh, uh, skin lightening creams. Um, um, but so providing that education um, that, you know, there, there may be downsides to using uh, these uh, creams uh, is highly important. Um, the patients definitely do ask that specific question uh, during pregnancy. Um, but I would say even outside of pregnancy, uh, there are safety concerns as well. For skin lightening creams, the main chemicals of concern include mercury and hydroquinone, which are added because they effectively inhibit the production of melanin in skin, and melanin is the pigment that makes skin darker. So these chemicals are known to be harmful to several different organs in the body, including the kidneys, nervous system, skin, and the respiratory tract. And unfortunately, it's not always clear that these toxic substances are included in products because they can be listed under different names. Yeah, I think it, this is such a challenge, right? Because this is being driven by our culture. And if you say to someone, you know, don't do anything, don't use anything, that's not necessarily always an option for people. Um, you know, so much of this is driven by what, you know, what what are the social gains? What are the economic gains if you, um, you know, particularly, you know, potentially, uh, make choices that will, you know, be more aligned with the social norms and the cultural norms of our society. I have two more, like, big questions I want to make sure that we have time yeah, sure. for. Um, and so one of the other things that, you know, thinking about, okay, there's these social and cultural drivers of product use, but I think one of the challenges, too, within a population um, that may have um, more limited language um, of, uh, you know, uh, English, particularly here in the United States. Um, but also for some, um, you know, there's, there's kind of these limitations around um, economic um, empowerment, and other things that are, that are going on within, um, you know, a, in this case, a lower, sometimes a lower income immigrant population in, in some settings. Can you say a bit more about, um, work-based differences. So do questions around work-based exposure or working during uh, pregnancy come up within your population? Are those things that, um, you know, you and your colleagues are thinking about in this particular case? Sure. There's many uh, jobs that do uh, present some potential environmental health ex uh, exposure risks for our patients. Many um, patients may be in uh, hotel uh, service workers. Uh, they may be restaurant workers, and as you mentioned, uh, nail salon workers. Uh, so especially with COVID and the pandemic, we understand that service industries um, have increased uh, 
viral exposure risk. I think everybody has a clear understanding that needing to be in person presents a certain environmental health risk uh, um, to a specific individual. So I, that has opened the door to discussing many other risks. Uh, for example, uh, with hotel work, whether it be uh, physical, chemical uh, exposures. Um, in uh, restaurant work, there also may be different uh, cleaners um, and also um, uh, the different uh, uh, COVID risks there as well. Um, and you know, how do we mitigate these risks? We can't eliminate someone's job or change their job, but you know, what are the healthier choices or potentially uh, safe um, so, some things a patient could do to help reduce uh, their exposure? For example, you know, wearing masks, wearing gloves, uh, taking uh, certain kinds of outdoor breaks um, may help uh, reduce some of these risks. I agree with you. COVID has really brought about an awareness of our indoor environment and what we're exposed to indoors. And that includes in the workplace um, and recognizing that that's not equitable, right? Like that, that, you know, um, individuals who may be in the service industry aren't necessarily always there by choice. It might be because of limitations in seeking careers in other fields. And yet, that may put them at risk of, of different exposures. In, in this case, in the context of beauty um, and beauty justice, really thinking about um, you know exposures that come from personal care products at, at kind of higher levels than the average public may be exposed to. So um, I really appreciate that you are thinking about that and, and integrating that into your practice. As Lucy and Tamara discussed, Folks from Asian immigrant communities may be occupationally exposed to environmental chemicals, such as endocrine disruptors and carcinogens from working in nail salons in particular. Research has noted that the majority of nail salon workers are Asian, identify as female, and are foreign-born, notably from Vietnam. This not only highlights how Asian immigrant communities may be at a particular risk of occupational exposure through working at nail salons, but more broadly, it highlights the structural drivers of exposure to personal care product chemicals and how these systemic and structural factors limit opportunities and can silo individuals into certain fields. And so that kind of leads me to my, my last question. How, how can we, you know, what's the way forward? Because I do think that clinicians play such a key role in, in being health, you know, communicators and being able to provide needed information. Um, So much of what we said today was really about um, the accessibility of information to people. People want to do their best. They want to do what they can to make sure that they have a healthy pregnancy, that they have a healthy baby. But if they don't have information, then it's going to be really hard to do that. And it's not just information. It's information that is accessible to them in the language that they speak that is interpretable. So um, how how do you think other OBGYNs and clinicians can get involved in in beauty justice efforts, particularly when caring for immigrant uh, communities? You are so right in that OBGYN providers uh, can play such a critical role um, because our pregnant patients are often at this time when they're open to making significant lifestyle changes, not only for themselves, but for their future child and families. 
they may quit smoking, eat better, exercise more. Um, and so we should be doing all we can to empower patients uh, to enhance our counseling uh, so that they can live as healthily as possible before, during, and after their pregnancy. Uh, besides our typical counseling regarding safe fish consumption re to reduce mercury exposure, um, we really can do more in trying to uh, discuss simple, actionable items patients can take, whether it be uh, choosing less processed packaged foods when possible, use fragrance-free products, um, and to be open to our patients' uh, questions in this area. Um, we also can do a lot more to work alongside our public health and medical colleagues and community leaders who are working to ensure uh, clean water, air, and that the products that are available to us in the community are safe uh, and with clear labels. So there's many fronts OBGYNs can uh, take action, uh, both in their individual offices as well as in the larger community. Thank you so much, Lucy. I, I think that's that multi-pronged approach is really needed. And it's particularly needed when we're working in populations that have been, um, you know, I, I'm a researcher, so I say understudied, but I think um, also just like a, a less awareness of the, the challenges. And, and so I'm really amazed at the work that you're doing. Um, it's, it's incredible. And are there any other thoughts or points that you wanted to share with us before we have to head out today? I also want to say that we can learn a lot from um, our patients um, and their lives. Um, you know, many uh, immigrant patients actually have many healthy lifestyle choices that are healthier than um, those who are born in the US. And so uh, learning from them, adopting some of those uh, where there's more home cooked meals sometimes, um, there's uh, Tai Chi exercises. Uh, so there's a lot to be learned from our patients uh, as well. And uh, that uh, some of these healthy choices uh, are actually coming from these communities uh, and that we should also be sharing those out too. I really love that you highlight this point of um, what we often, in epidemiology, sometimes we, uh, my field in public health, we spend so much time thinking about risk factors and such less time talking about protective and resilience factors. And so I love that you highlighted uh, this and, um, some work of one of our colleagues um, really focusing in on ethnic enclaves and so the, the, the resilience that comes from community um, and really working together. Because I think at the end of the day, when we're dealing with these issues of beauty justice, it's really going to be a collective effort where we incorporate and recognize those resilience factors uh, that we can really learn um, healthier lifestyle choices, um, but also rec recognizing to really debunk uh, rid ourselves of these structural factors. It's going to be working together within communities to um, really empower um, peoples <laughs> um, to be able to affect change. So I'm really grateful for your time today. And I, um, you know, I look forward to continuing to do this work with you. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. When thinking about achieving beauty justice for all communities, access to information and resources is an important aspect of that. 
and there are clear gaps in ensuring equitable access to these things, particularly in healthcare. So we have work to do to make sure that patients have culturally relevant and appropriately translated information, and clinicians who are knowledgeable about a variety of environmental health concerns and have similar experiences and shared language with their patients is the norm and not the exception. Dr. Lucy Chi and her colleagues at South Cove Community Health Center demonstrate that this can become a reality. Lucy also highlighted the importance of listening to and learning from the community. Research continues to show that for a variety of areas, assimilation into dominant American culture makes people more unwell and may expose them to more personal care product chemicals of concern. As Lucy said, we have a lot to learn from our immigrant community members about how to live and exist healthfully. And with that, we've reached the end of our dive into the role of clinicians in beauty justice. In the next few episodes, we'll be shifting towards the role of businesses in ensuring safer products. So tune in to the next episode when we talk with Boma Brown West, previous director of Environmental Defense Fund plus business, to discuss the positive transformations that are already taking place within the beauty industry. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Beauty Plus Justice. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast streaming platform you use and subscribe to the show. Be well. This episode was produced and edited by Marissa Chan, Lisa Johnson, and Felicia Haykoop, with assistance from Elkania Chaudhry-Polino. We receive funding from the Environmental Defense Fund.